The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to everyone, and especially to anybody who's new tonight. Always want to welcome you to the center and acknowledging that it's really an act of bravery to walk into a place for the first time. And so let us know, Kevin, as our program host, if you have any questions, you can check in with Kevin at the end. And usually at the end of the month, but I'll be leaving for a three-week trip. I'll be teaching on both coasts over the next few weeks. And uh, so I won't be here at the end of the month. So I just generally remind folks, because we don't have a lot of reminders about how this Place has come to be, and it's it's really an amazing story. Twenty six years ago, Common Ground started in a very simple way, basically. And and Win Fricky, my partner and the co-founder of Common Ground, in our living room, which was an old storefront seven blocks away. And for these twenty six years, all the programs, you know, it's quite uh, involved now. We have lots of teachers, including some of you in the room or our teachers here, and. Uh, all the teachings, classes, programs are offered freely. And that, of course, happens because of the generosity of the whole community. And it's not just this building that we have, but Comground, uh, maybe five years ago now, bought an old farm, or a relatively new farm, I should say, built by an Amish family in western Wisconsin, about 83 miles away. And we're in the middle of very expensive renovation. <laughs> I just went over the budget today with our treasurer. <laughs> It's getting close to 350000 just for the renovation, but that will come back online for the community to use sometime in the fall, probably even early fall. And all of this has happened, the purchase of that retreat property, the purchase of this building, the complete renovation of this building, because people contribute in a way that makes them happy. So the, the deal here, here is to practice receiving everything as a free gift, no strings attached. We don't talk about it a lot because we know that everyone's got to find their own way just to receive it as a free gift from everybody who's done whatever they've done previously. And then if ever it feels, you feel motivated to do something, then you just do what you want to do. Laura picked up a snowball, a snowblower. I don't know if you picked it up yet, but yeah. <laughs> By the way, do you need help? <laughs> Let us know if you do. But just all the many, many different ways people have made this place happen. Then just volunteer. Connect, connect with Gabe in the office. And of course, we pay our office people. We support our teachers' livelihood. We have actual expenses. So if you want to contribute money, that obviously is needed too. And that's how all this happens. And it's just for each person to find a way to give back that makes sense in your life, given your circumstances, and it makes you happy and to receive in a way that makes you happy. And that's how this place comes to be. So if you ever have questions about that, feel free to check in with the office. Gail Iverson is our bookkeeper. She works on Tuesdays. You can call in that day if you have any questions. And of course, we have more information on the website you can check out. So I've been giving a series of talks the last six weeks off and on when I've been in town on this part of our practice called SILA, in a way, you could say the whole path, spiritual path, is really about cultivating habits 
that aren't in conflict with life, right? And then freedom, when we talk about spiritual freedom, it's really when the mind isn't in conflict with the way it is, right? The absence of friction. So sila is that part of spiritual life that's on this more gross level of relationships, our relationship with each other, our relationship with our communities that we're part of. And we can just imagine, we certainly, it catches our attention when we're in relationship with our partner, with a friend, with society, and doesn't, you know, feels like there's conflict. You know, I'm not okay with the relationship. So that happens a lot. And then, so that's one third, and I'm going to talk about that third tonight, how our relationship with each other and the world, the world of experience, can be free of conflict, how the Buddha talks about that. But then even within our own mind, can our mind, the activity of our own mind, so now we're going a step toward the subtle, just the ordinary mood and attitudes and qualities of mind, can all that be without conflict? And then the most subtle level, still within the mind, within the heart, can our view, our underlying view and understanding, not be in conflict with the world or with the way it is? So it's just interesting that harmony, that harmonizing with the outer world, harmonizing within our own mind in terms of the mood and qualities, and harmonizing in the steepest sense like our view, understanding, is in line with the way it is. Or our attitudes of mind, qualities of mind, are in line with wholesome, beautiful qualities like kindness and clarity and patience. right? And our outer relationships are in line with this resonant commitment not to harm, not to contribute to harm in any way, in my own or others' lives. So how do we bring our life into harmony? And we have the gross, the medium, and the very subtle, right? But we're harmonizing on all these levels. And how do we harmonize? Well, we, we rely on the sensitivity. You can't really do this without sensitivity. And so I've been talking on the grosser level of our ethical conduct, how we are, how we relate to harming and non-harming in terms of our relationships. We develop this thing we call, we could call moral sensitivity. It's like we're, we're interested, we're actually interested in the kind of seeds we plant all day long through our, not just our actions in the world, but even our, and certainly our speech in the world, but even our thoughts plant seeds. You know, we can kind, sometimes at least when we're sensitive and we walk into a room where somebody's really stewing, you know, with hatred, we can pick it up. It, it affects the vibration or the quality when we're around, just, you know, around someone who's hateful, let's say, but the opposite is true, too. If we walk into a room and everybody's in a really good place and there's a lot of love and generosity of the heart, we feel really, we feel really held and safe in that space. So 
in terms of this commitment to show up in the in the sort of more gross, concrete sense, in terms of our relationship with each other, how we're showing up in the world, right? What kind of seeds are we planting right now? You know, hopefully, relatively wholesome seeds right now. I mean, just right now, we're in relationship with each other. One of the nice things about, you know, sitting in a room like this, being relatively quiet like we were this last 35 minutes or so, it's a really beautiful thing because, partly because we're not talking with each other, we're not planting negative seeds. That's one of the advantages of keeping our mouth shut. Not that that's possible <laughs> all the time, but it's nice sometimes just to share a space, right, and to let things get really simple. And just that unspoken truth that just happens in this kind of space. Because, you know, as a beast, we're all beasts here, animals, and we want to survive. We don't want to die. And to be sitting with 100 people with our eyes closed, you know, that's, that's an act of courage. You know? And the, what allows for that is the, like the feeling I was describing that there's a sense that I can trust all the people I'm sitting in this room with, trust them well enough to have my eyes closed, and my body, my mind undefended, and just to yeah, put down the armor for a few minutes. Like we do, hopefully, most nights, you feel safe enough to fall asleep and to put the armor down, right? You don't have to be vigilant for pesky mosquitoes or worse, you know, that might come your way. I was teaching a retreat a couple of weeks ago out in uh, the southwestern corner of Washington, Washington State. It's almost exactly halfway between Portland and Seattle. Wonderful place called Cloud Mountain Retreat Center. I teach out there a couple times a year usually. And uh, somebody was sitting. They have some benches. This one was, this bench was not that far away from buildings, maybe, maybe 150 feet at the most. And so this person was sitting there. And then opened their eyes, and 20 feet away, they heard something, opened their eyes, was a cougar. (laughs) So that sort of changed the energy. (laughs) And I don't know if you caught it, but about exactly 12 months ago, maybe May of 2018, two mountain bikers were attacked by a cougar in Washington State. One was killed, the other one was mauled. So they had this fresh memory of that. So... You know, that's actually the kind of world we live in. And a lot of us know that because the job scene you're in or the political scene you're in, you know, you're really bumping up, at least in moments, with others' hostility, hatred, fear, greed, you know, contempt, whatever. But we bump into those experiences way, you know, more than we would like. And then it, it's really easy. You see this in our political environment now where hatred begets hatred. I mean, we kind of know that, but it's so easy to justify contempt and hatred. The Buddha and the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the early Buddhist uh, texts, 
This one's called the Dhammapada, the sort of collection of verses. But anyway, there's this path, passage that says something like, hatred never ceases with hatred, but through love alone does hatred cease. And we kind of know that hatred begets hatred. You know, spewing contempt, spewing self-righteousness, spewing judgment tends to trigger that and those around us. And yet, in moments, it feels so appropriate to express hatred. And so we, you know, and then the the only real question, of course, is what sort of seeds have I planted in my heart and in the world that I'm living in? Because, as the Buddha says, those seeds, at some point, are going to do what seeds do. They're going to sprout. They're going to have their effect. And then we're going to be the recipient, and and often everyone else will be the recipient of the particular seed that we've planted. So have we planted seeds of harmony or seeds of hate? And you might be hearing this and thinking, okay, so it sounds like he's advocating for passivity. Or just you know letting people with power take advantage of people without power. I'm not you know that would it's you know that complacency or that allowing people with power and ill will to take advantage of people with less power. That would be you know complicit being complicit with violence or with oppression. So. That's not planting good seeds. That's planting unwholesome seeds, allowing somebody to take advantage of other of others isn't wholesome. And we'll we'll see like when somebody is spewing hatred and we happen to be there and we don't feel like rocking the boat and saying anything, right? And then we check later. Okay. What does that feel like to have not spoken my truth in that moment because I was afraid. What does that feel like? Oh, it doesn't feel good. Like I planted seeds of fear. I planted seeds of, you know, not trusting the clarity that I had in that moment. And so now I have those seeds in my heart that I need to be honest about. I need to forgive myself. But I also need to take care of it because when we do plant seeds, whatever kind of seeds, we ended up gossiping about somebody and then later notice, oh, that didn't feel good, right? Well, those seeds are there, but the story hasn't ended with me planting those seeds. Now, noticing those seeds are there is the next moment. What's, what kind of seed am I going to plant now? Am I going to hate myself? Well, that's another seed that maybe we don't want to have planted there. Or I can see it clearly. I can forgive myself. I can resolve not to plant any more of those seeds. Right? We get right back in there. And this is really that level of morality, habit without conflict. Cultivating a, you know, habit energies, a way of being in the world, a way of being in relationship, expressing our sexuality. So even those kind of more sticky, complicated relationships that involve you know, our sexual energy and all the relationships we have that have some sort of power imbalance, right? There's no avoiding this stuff. 
being a human being. So to, but to really see this as like my resolve is to be in relationship because there's no way to be alive and not in relationship. Even if you like find a cave somewhere or a living room somewhere, a living room couch probably somewhere, and that's like, I'm not going anywhere, I'm just going to stay there. Well, you're still in relationship with yourself and your relationship with everyone else is avoidance, right? So how does that feel? How's that working for you? And how's that working for everyone else in your life? What kind of seeds are getting planted? So it's like we don't get away from planting seeds by avoiding relationship. That's just the seed we're planting, avoiding relationships. And then the question is, what does it feel like to be planting that seed of being afraid of being in relationship, being afraid of engagement? What does that feel like? to be living that kind of life. In the same way, we could ask the question, if you're someone who's always got to be engaged, always need somebody around, always need to be in conversation, well, what does that feel like? What kind of seeds am I planting in my heart and am I planting around me and other people in the sort of the shared space of our lives? Are they seeds of tightness or are they seeds of release? I mean, just to keep it simple, Who do we all become when those kinds of seeds are planted? What kind of person am I becoming having planted these seeds? Is that the kind of heart person I want to be? I mean, it's really simple. As one of my teachers, Ruth Dennison, said, darling, you don't get away with nothing, (laughs) right? She was this older, when I studied with her, an older German woman, who immigrated to the States, one of our early Western Dharma teachers in the early Buddhism or Vipassana insight meditation tradition. Because we don't get away with nothing. We don't get, get away with anything. Because every moment we're planting seeds. And the Buddha describes, this is karma, right? These impressions that our actions, our thoughts, our words, they leave in our heart. Right? So every moment, these impressions, and some impressions are unskillful in the sense that they set emotion contraction, being bound up with fear, for example. And other seeds are seeds of happiness and release. And other seeds are moving toward a, what we call spiritual freedom, freedom from taking karma personally, you could say. Like, there are seeds. And this this is sort of learning to, it really actually allows us to do more skillful action, like in a very ordinary, direct way, like planting really wholesome seeds that will lead to the well-being of everyone, right, is not being identified with karma. So first we have to want to be a good person, plant good seeds. And then when we get really good at planting good seeds, it starts to evolve in our heart that needing, being identified with being good, gets in the way of being good. So we start to tease out the need to be planting good seeds because that actually supports us planting good seeds. So that's why we say 
a saint, you know, somebody we might call a really wise, kind, saintly person, there's somebody, right, we wouldn't consider them a saint if they're not engaged in making the world a better place. They're engaged, but they're not attached to their engagement. There's that famous story, not from the Buddhist tradition, but from the yogic mystical tradition. Maybe some of you have read it. There's some really good translations to the Bhagavad Gita. Anybody read the Bhagavad Gita about Arjuna and Krishna? So you probably know Krishna, the, one of the Hindu yogic deities, right? Just probably originated as aspects of our heart and mind. So this is like a beautiful, beautifully wise aspect. And there's this, uh, this text from ancient India called the Bhagavad Gita. It's embedded in this great epic story called the... Uh, uh, oh, I'm forgetting what it's called. Anyway, there's a great epic story. Ba- uh, Mahabharata. And so the Bhagavad Gita is embedded, and it's part of the story where the uh, Arjuna, through these twists and turns, has to go to war. There's sort of this great war about to happen. And on the other side of the battlefield are some of his teachers and gurus and family members, cousins, siblings, I think, as well. And so he's conflicted, right? It's just no way around it. You know how things get set in motion. There's going to be this big war. Everyone's already got their troops in line. And uh, earlier, he had decided that he wanted, he could have, like when they were dividing up the resources of the family, because the family's at war with each other, he had a choice to sort of take some of the military power or to have Krishna, this deity, as his right-hand person. And he had the wherewithal to choose to have Krishna near him. And so he's sitting and he kind of loses heart like, oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do this. And so he's about, he's falling apart and he asks Krishna for help. And so the whole story is about these sticky places like some of you are maybe parents of teenagers or some of you may be activists trying to make the world a better place, you know, changing our criminal justice system or dealing with the crisis in immigration or whatever it might be, involved in trying to bring compassionate action into the world to take care of people who need support, who are, who are being oppressed or you know, neglected in some way, or just raising kids. right? So whatever it is, sometimes it seems so complex. How can I... Right? There's no blueprint for how we're supposed to be ourselves or do like, what's the right way. We can pretend there's a right way, but there's not, never really a right way. I mean, even this relatively simple problem of how to stay in relationship with another human being, how to have an intimate relationship. Anybody have a perfect blueprint? Like that always works for you? You just, okay, you look, oh, this is going to, the answer here is going to be in chapter three. You know, oh yeah, okay. And you say that to the partner, and then all of a sudden things get resolved. No. There's, no. there's no blueprint. There's no right or wrong way. We're just sort of feeling our way. And so Arjuna turns to Krishna, and this, the Krishna, this conversation between Arjuna and Krishna is all about, like, we have, my interpretation of it is something like, we have rights. In fact, 
Zygon writes, we have no way to avoid engagement. But we don't have rights to sort of name or call how it should all turn out. We have rights. We have this ability to show up with beautiful motivation, right? with love, with compassion, with interest, with humility, curiosity. But we don't really get to say how it's going to turn out. Like, is this troubled time? You know, and I, I'm not naive, I think there's been a lot of troubled times throughout history. Right? I always remind, it helps, I don't know if it helps you, but like when things seem really bleak, and I remember, well, boy, in the early 50s, it was really bleak in this country, you know, with the McCarthy trials and whatever that was. So there are lots of times when there was a lot of ugliness. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, it isn't difficult, but it just reminds me, it actually helps me show up. And that showing up is not the same as demanding that this this is not okay, this shouldn't be this way. No, no, it's this way. It is this way. And maybe it's maybe it helps to relax. Maybe my perfect engagement, maybe all of our perfect engagement will only slow things things are still going to go to hell, but a little bit more gracefully, right? Right, Because we don't know. But maybe that, that engagement is still appropriate, even if things get worse. I mean, that's definitely true with the aging process. So on this sort of relatively simple level of like taking care of our body, we don't win in the end. I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> Hopefully you've been paying enough attention to know that sort of general trajectory of body. So maybe you're sort of hoping that, you know, by the time you get, you know, my age or into your 60s that, you know, the technology will evolve and we'll have bionic bodies. Transfer your experiences onto a chip, you know, and then you'll be set <laughs> for a real hell realm probably. <laughs> Oh, that doesn't seem appealing. <laughs> so this, this is why the Buddha's teachings really were expressed in all three frequency levels, sort of this gross level of relationship, this inner level of like the qualities of our own heart and mind, and this most subtle level in terms of our underlying view, and about harmonizing on all levels. Right? And just to keep... Start. I mean, he often recommended we start on this more gross level because it's hard to get interested in the sort of quality of the mind when we're being haunted by our you know, relationships with the world, our relationships with our family and our job scenes and our you know, immediate neighborhood and communities that we're part of. If we have a hostile relationship, if we don't feel like we belong in any way, if we don't feel safe, it's not so easy to sit down and look at the mind and start to sort of balance the mind, create harmony in the mind, what we call in Buddhism samadhi. Right? So generally speaking, I mean, it, it isn't a perfect linear, like first we get become really wholesome you know, in terms of our ethical conduct, and then we get really settled and peaceful and balanced minds, and then we 
transform our understanding so it's in line with the deepest truth of the way it is, and then we're done. Right? It's not that would be one of those sort of false ideas that there's a perfect blueprint and then we just sort of do step A and then step B and then eventually get to step Z and then we're done. It's a lot of moments of purifying one's understanding and then we're brought into the world of our relationship with our cat and we're purifying this more gross level of our way of interacting with the world, not projecting on the cat right, our expectations but understanding, even though this cat lives in this house, it is a wild creature, right? It's not sort of my uh, emotional slave here to serve my underlying emotional needs, right? It actually has its own life, right? I mean, this is sort of interesting. This is their particular niche, these domesticated creatures, dogs and cats, right? They, they found a way to live their life in the same way that insects sort of have a symbiotic relationship maybe with a tree, right? So it's not they're, not, they're not here to serve us. And so just to kind of, then we're dealing with that. We're sort of becoming a little wiser in the dance we have with our cat, with our partner, with our, and then maybe we realize that the real stumbling, stumbling block is the mood or the quality of my mind right now or the habit, mental habits. And then we see them. We, bring, we shine mindfulness on this moderately subtle place of just looking at mental qualities, emotions. Oh, yeah. And then just seeing the scene, you know, the messy scene of our emotions and our habit energies is purifying. It's like, it's interesting, a little bit like water, how water has the capacity to purify. It's so interesting after a heavy rain like we've had. You know, the city seems a little cleaner, just that, you know, being washed. And it's like that, and even sunshine has that sort of purifying quality. And awareness is that same thing. It's not so much we're paying, uh, paying attention to the qualities of the mind in order to kind of get in there and manipulate and, put together mental qualities or just the way we want them to be. The awareness, that sunshine of awareness, whether we're shining the light on our relationship with our cat or a partner or people we work with or we're shining the light on our mental qualities or we're shining the light on our more subtle understanding, it's like falseness. So on this level, it would be uh, unwholesome action, unwholesome words, speech, right? It naturally gets purified. It's hard to be a jerk when we're aware. So if we just shine that light, like if you go home, let's say you're in a difficult spot with the person you live with, whoever that might be, and, and you, don't have, you don't go home with an agenda, okay, I'm going to really make amends and fix the relationship. You just go home with the resolve to be open, be really sensitive, really awake, see things, your own like inner environment and anything you can pick up from the outer environment. That's your only resolve to be present and to feel what you feel. You'll notice it's like things start to get better when we're sensitive. And even if 
the force of habit and we act out, the awareness, that, that stability of awareness, for, to whatever degree it's there, it's going to reveal, oh, you just did something very unskillful. Right? That's what that wisdom awareness will see. Oh, that wasn't helpful. We'll be more inclined to make amends, to ask for forgiveness, right? to ask for a redo. Can I say that again? That wasn't helpful. Let me say let me try it again, please. And we try it again. Right? So the awareness it's hard, like even if we're acting out negative qualities, awareness will support the abandoning of that negative, unwholesome strategy, whatever, because of the force of habit the mind picked up. And the same thing with our mental qualities and the same thing with our understanding. So it's not that we're giving up on the project to be a more wholesome, skillful, wiser, kinder human being. We're just getting wiser about how we clean up our act. Being desperate to clean up our act is something we actually have to clean up. right? Like I mentioned earlier, being afraid of making mistakes gets in the way of being skillful. So it's just something to explore on your own, this bringing awareness into all the complexity of our ethical lives, all our relationships around food, around purchases, around our sexual relationships, around power, right? stuff we have, stuff we're sharing, around justice issues. I mean, I think this issue around immigration is so interesting because it really evokes some of these primal fears, right? Like somebody walking into our house, but it's my house. This is my house. So it's easy for people who have a lot of safety to say, oh yeah, you know, I've got a big door, I've got my money in a secure place, so I'm okay you know, because I'm secure. So this is the thing about, like, what do we do in a world where some people have more and some people have less? And to get really honest, because we tend to want to deal with these things in sort of idealistic or superficial ways instead of really understanding we're afraid. And, And then with that fear... We use the power we have to protect whatever we think is me or mine. So it might be a group of people or just me or myself alone. And it really helps us to understand everybody else and all of the unwholesome reactivity you know, where people really are being harmed when we understand that we're basically frightened beasts. And it doesn't mean that we should be frightened. The fact is, people are frightened and acting out of their fear. And then we do stupid stuff that just increases the fear and the reactivity. And so how do we break that cycle? Well, the first thing is we illuminate it with awareness and we see, right? we see the reactivity, how hate begets hate. That's just what it does. It's like one of those laws of physics. It's neither good nor bad. It's just something to appreciate that hate begets hate. 
It doesn't resolve anything. Closing our heart leads to a heart that's closed. You know, imagining that we can withdraw from life, like in my little safe corner, we have to really see what that does to us. Otherwise, on the surface, it can seem to make sense. Let me hide in my corner, my safe corner. Let me build a wall around me. It seems like it makes sense. And only if we, like, because we care about our lives, we check it out. Does it make sense? What kind of seeds am I planting when I do that? Is this the kind of person I want to become? So just to finish up, because I'll be moving when I get back in town in the week of the August 12th, we'll be starting a different topic, um, finishing up the summer and going into the fall. And so just finishing up this conversation we've been having before opening it up for discussion, um, just to remember these five trainings, because you can recite them to yourself. It's really useful. So the basic recitation is, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, we don't pretend to know what that means, like what that's actually going to look like, but the commitment is like an alarm clock or a mindfulness spell. So whenever we're in the vicinity where we might be harming ourselves or another, that commitment, like having said that to myself this morning, then I'm more likely to notice when a mosquito is nearby and I want to slap it. Oh, yeah. I remember saying that this morning. I undertake the training not to harm living beings. Is there another way? Yeah, it's called, (laughs) right? There is another way. Okay, good. And it will feel good, like having dodged that bullet. Like, okay, what's next? And then the second one is undertaking the training. This is more complicated in a way. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given to me. Because... From my point of view, that's, that's a very interesting reflection to be holding. What does that mean not to take anything that wasn't freely given? An emphasis on the words freely given. Because some of our economic, some aspects of our economic systems are definitely exploitative in the sense of taking advantage of people who don't have a lot of power. So is the wealth that I have in my checking account actually mine? How much of it is mine to be used for my own interest? How much of it should I share with others who you know, didn't have the same privilege, didn't have the same opportunities that I had? I don't know. I don't really know. But I can notice what it's like when I share some of that wealth that I have or that privilege that I have when I can and notice what that feels like, what kind of seeds get planted when I don't share anything. Right, And that's how we find our way. We choose to be sensitive. We don't pretend we know. Like, oh, this is my money, not your money, you know, because it's in my checking account. No, it's money is what it is. It's power or it's energy to be used in a way that makes all of us happy. And when we're sensitive, it's like your happiness matters. When we're sensitive... It's hard to be happy when everyone around us is unhappy. You know? We can be happy when we're like little children do sometimes when they don't want to hear what the parents are saying. La 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 la. You know, we can be happy in a way when we do that, so we're not noticing that others are suffering. 
But eventually we notice how oppressive it is to have to be going la, 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 la. <laughs> you know, and all the ways we keep distracted and busy and pretend we don't care or pretend we don't notice that people are really suffering. And again, I'm, I, I first admit I have no clue how to do this except my heart's sensitive and we make a choice and we notice how it feels. And then we'd make another choice and see if we're feeling better or feeling worse, right? Day by day, moment by moment, really, we find our way to navigate every ethical situation we're in, which is really every moment. And then the third training is undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm with our sexual activities. So we just, in our sexual activities, when we're flirting, when we're looking, when we're thinking, when we're doing this and that, we notice what sort of seeds we're planting. How does it feel having just said that? How does it feel? What's left? What am I sensing? Seeds of contraction, seeds of hate, seeds of fear, seeds of love, seeds of release. We take responsibility for the seeds that are getting set in motion. Fourth one is undertaking the training to refrain from using speech, words, in ways that cause harm. Again, so we just know, I just, having just said that, what's the leftover? You know, both in my heart, but just generally in, in the room. And then the fourth is undertaking the training to refrain because all of this work around this commitment to non-harming depends on sensitivity, clarity, The fifth is undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind that gets in the way of being sensitive so we can notice what kind of seeds we've been planting. So just leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. I ask people just to stay until 9 o'clock. It's just a nice etiquette to stay for the Q&A time so that we hear from the community what people have been learning, questions that have come up. It's nice to say your name. We are recording tonight. Well, hi, I'm uh, Travis. Here's something that, that troubles me always so much, um, and, and I was just wondering how you would reconcile like this sort of thing. It could be taken at a global level or even down to my family of origin. There's like this idealism. Like I see things could be so much better. Like it's, like it's having the best intentions possible. Like that I, I really want the best for my family of origin that's suffering with a lot of kind of emotional issues, or, you know, even with my career, you know, I'd see like, oh, this could be so much better, you know, or like the plans I have. And then, you know, the reality doesn't meet that expectation and that idealism can sometimes slip into cynicism, you know, like yeah, part we of the feel betrayed. Yeah, yeah. And I just like to reconcile kind of like the reality with you know what's in my mind of like oh how this could be i mean is that something that you think about you know very often or like like because you don't want to give up wanting something better right i mean even the spiritual life is wanting something better right there's an aspiration for freedom or aspiration for a more compassionate heart so you're ab- i think you're absolutely right there's a place for aspiration but that's all it is. It's an idea of Mark and like having a more compassionate, wiser, released heart, right? And, 
But the but immediately wisdom should know that's just an aspiration. That's just an idea. It's an energizing idea because it's beautiful, but it's just an idea. There's an old saying, you know, you probably many of you have heard this. How do you make God laugh? Make plans, right? Because we're, there are no guarantees, right? So we may have a really powerful, beautiful aspiration for world peace or justice in the world. But there are many things in play that determine justice, how people get treated in this world, right? So wanting there to be real justice and even having a powerful imagination where we could really visualize it, that's not the cause for justice coming to be in the world. The cause is that really messy, messy, sticky political work of dealing with the power structures, naming them, rallying, organizing, being persistent, being fearless, two steps forward, one step back, right? So, and even then, there's no guarantee. Like, I don't think it's written anywhere that things are going to get better. You know, a lot of people just have this sort of idea that things have this natural progression. But what we know this is, both human culture and everything else, it's a natural system. A natural system, meaning it's an interplay of innumerable causes and conditions. Some of them we can vaguely see, those things that are in motion. Probably a lot of what's in play we're not even aware of, right? We can't directly name or measure. And all of that dancing together, that's going to make things the way they're going to be. And so it's okay to have an aspiration, and then we just need to balance it with, and who knows, who knows. Because the aspiration, as you're suggesting, Travis, is necessary. It's energizing. Otherwise, it can seem to make sense to give up. So having a goal or an aspiration is useful. But you'll see that as your spiritual life continues, the, uh, the subtlety of your goal or aspiration really changes. Initially, when we get in spiritual life, we just want suffering to end. We just want to be relieved of immediately the pain. And we don't really care about the cost, the long-term cost. We want the pain to go away now, right? And so I'm showing up at Common Ground because I'm really hurting, and I'm hoping this Buddhist stuff is going to help or something like that. And eventually, you know, as our practice and, you know, we get more balance and good things start to happen in our life, we have we kind of create a bigger picture and we're kind of willing to sort of walk the path because we have this long-term view and we're going to really get the gold at the end of the spiritual path. And, uh, and that works for a while. And then eventually, you know, there's enough sort of uh, development where we have a sense, a growing, deepening, intuitive sense that the work of spiritual life is its own reward. And if it leads to full and complete Nibbana, as we talk about in the Buddhist tradition, great. But the idea of me becoming totally free is not a helpful thought, actually. It actually doesn't fit our experience. So any sort of self-centered idea of getting something at the end turns out to 
not be a useful motivation. But in the beginning, it's definitely a useful motivation. Right? It gets us on the path. It gets us interested, asking questions, taking responsibility for our mind. Yeah. Thanks. Who would like to go next? Yeah, Mesky in the corner. So this teaching you are saying is kind of dependent on the sensitivity, kind of to check that. This, this is not really a question, but <laughs> so if I've been practicing greed or whatever, the sensitivity is tuned to that, right? So what other people may not may be sensitive to compassion, I'm more sensitive to greed. How do you actually get out of that? Like whatever wrong view that I have, mm-hmm. that's what I'm sensitive to. Right. And then if so we're feeling, we're noticing that there's greed. And then all we need is a little crack, which I'm assuming is there, Mesky, that like it seems good, you know, getting what I want, organizing my life and my mind to get what I want. It seems good because the idea of greed always is juicy. That's the thing about greed. On the surface, greed is often pleasant or at least energizing, right? The anticipation, the idea that if I work hard or get strategic, I'll get what I want and then I'll be happy. There's an enlivening quality with a lot of greed. And then the, the thing is if we have some crack where we're willing to open broaden the awareness, basically to be curious, like what does it feel like to be greedy? What does it feel like to be in that greed cycle? The if only, then I'll be happy cycle. Because greed greed is a really pervasive thing and it doesn't get undermined unless the heart gets sensitive enough to notice how oppressive it is to need things to be different and how that never ends, how gratifying a desire doesn't diminish the oppressiveness of greed, of wanting something. There's just, there's always another thing to want. So there's a promise that's never kept. The idea, like, if I got that cabin, that perfectly nice cabin, then my heart, mind, body would be really comfortable and peaceful. Right. So there's this idea but it's just not true. And so even if I were to get the cabin, right, I might have some nice feeling of gratification, but it wouldn't be wouldn't last very long before wanting to do the addition, right? Or want kind of a longer dock, right? Or whatever it would be to buy out the neighbor so they're not so close. <laughs> or whatever one's idea of you know, happiness is a long or beautiful vacation somewhere or even uh, an activist, you know, like wanting the world to be a different way. Because the problem lies in the greed cycle itself. So the thing is we can take care of ourselves, but not from a greed point of view, but from a compassionate point of view. What's good medicine? What really helps? And really transforming the short-term perspective of greed into the long-term perspective. So sometimes like, I'll ask myself, and this has really helped with the cabin 
thing. I mean, I'm, I'm almost have burnt it out of my mind. Because I imagine, <laughs> I imagine being 80, you know, assuming I make it that long, it's like it's, I won't be able to, one, get myself there or take care of the place. And already, I don't have time to take care of my yard. <laughs> I mean, we have like a yard that's a mess because we're too busy or we think we're too busy. So like these things we think will make us happy. But when we take the big picture view, it's like, oh, I got to let go of it anyway. You know, when I die or get older or whatever. It really changes what we're sort of taking as a refuge. So that's considered the antidote to greed is taking in the big picture, looking at how gratification doesn't lead to the release of the ache of greed and how with the truth of death, what's the point? And it doesn't mean, okay, so I'm not going to eat because I'm going to die or I'm not going to go to the restaurant with my honey because I'm going to die or buy a pair of pants because I'm going to die. But it really takes, it takes the lie out of the greed. Because, oh, if I had the, that pair of pants, you know, somehow my life would be significantly different. Or whatever we, we might think. I mean, it's amazing how juicy it can be. Which is why when we're depressed, you know, assuming you, you have the resources or whatever, credit card that still works, shopping is a way, because there is a promise that if I get something, I'll be happy. There's one of our longtime leaders here talks sometimes about kabucha. It's like, when things get rough, go buy kabucha. <laughs> you know, I know people who, like, that's their thing. I mean, for me, it was chocolate for a while, and then it turned into ice cream, you know. When life is rough, go get some good ice cream. Right? It sort of works. <laughs> Until it doesn't. Right? It's like the idea really works, and the first few bites sort of work. And that's about it. Right? And then you keep eating, thinking it's going to keep working. But it stops working very quick. And then there are other implications. <laughs> We have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Thanks, Meski and Travis, for sharing with us. And let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. And to appreciate a few moments of silence. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.